Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And I'm going to show a little bit of the behind the scenes of what we're working on with the HDR. So we'll see if... Uh, <laughs> If you have enough questions to keep an hour going on that. So we're going to, we're going to check that out. So we'll see. Could be a really short day. So anyway, we'll, we'll see how this goes. Um, all right. Uh, let's, let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Uh, um, Mitch, what do we got? Thanks, Alex. Uh, Paul Wallace is in first from Austin, Texas, and he's asking the Osbot Tiny 2 available for pre-order. Looks like a serious contender to the Insta360 link. Awesome specs and a remote to boot. Comment? Uh, yeah, I think that the, um, we just have to see it. We haven't, it's pre-order, so we haven't gotten a chance to look at it. Uh, the, the field of view is wider than the, than the one, than the, um, this is the mini, or the, this is the link, three, the Insta360 link. Field of view is wider, um, which does not improve the quality of the camera for me. It, it definitely means it, to me, it means it's lower resolution. So I'm interested in the fact that we can we can control it remotely. I have a feeling that the link will probably be able to do that somewhere in the future too. So, um, but we'll have to. I think we'll hold comment until we actually put it against charts against the link. Um, but uh, you know, I have I ordered a couple Osbots in the past and sent them back because they just didn't they didn't turn the corner on for from a quality perspective. So all the stats the, the stats looked fine. When I actually looked through the cameras and and put them in, I was not happy with them. So I'm going to kind of, I'm gonna you know, this could be better, but uh, the, the first uh, passes on those were not great. Uh, next question. Next question in from Douglas Carmichael asking, for a contentious topic or a known combative interview subject, how do you keep the conversation on track? Go, Bill. And you should go back immediately and watch yesterday's show with Michael Krasny. The, the, the man clearly has a absolute genius for this, and he addressed this exact topic. And I think it has to do with uh, how he hosts. And it seemed to me that this gentleman was absolutely unflappable in the face of anything. And on top of being unflappable in terms of personality and incredibly eloquent and able to command these subjects, he was able to kind of emotionally take the temperature of whatever guest came by. And he addressed when somebody's out of, uh, you know, trying to get their agenda passed or getting hostile or something like that. And he didn't ignore it, but it, it was interesting. His advice was something like, you know, why are, you know, he didn't say, why are you doing this? But he had a way of just addressing it directly that was still polite. He never broke that veil of, I am listening to you and paying attention to you. And when he was describing how he did it with somebody who was trying to vent their emotions, you just got the feeling that, boy, I don't know if I could continue to be angry in the face of someone who is so polite, but is making the point, please stop doing this. It was really a master class yesterday in, in interview dynamics and interview intelligence. Yeah, I will say that yesterday was uh, that was one of the best second hours we've had. I mean, just just an incredible collection of information and, and just a great conversation. It was great, great questions uh, by the panelists and the and the producers as well as just an incredible amount of knowledge that that Michael uh, laid down yesterday. It was really really good. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, plus one on uh, Michael. He's quite adept at dealing with that. Um, I've had it happen a few times and generally I go immediately to a break and uh, have the producer have a conversation with the uh, interviewee because I don't want to be the subject of, uh, of, of intensity and try to diffuse it. And if you can't diffuse it, the, the guest had to go. Sorry. 
<laughs> I I have to admit that um most of the time that I've been in that situation, I I use it. I I have to admit that I don't I don't try to cool it down. I just keep poking the bear. <laughs> Because it's good, I've decided it's good radio. <laughs> like it was, like so when I was when I was doing interviews and someone got combative, I would just keep poking poking at them. I would see, I would triangulate what they were upset about, and then I would do it subtly so that the audience wouldn't necessarily get what I was doing, but they would, <laughs> and they would just get more. They would just keep spiraling up, and I, and I and mostly I you know I worked as. Uh, a semi shock jock in, in in on a morning show. So if we brought someone in and they were arguing, but they'd argue with us, and we would just spin them up into a frenzy until they were yelling into their mic, and and we were just kind of we were just sitting there just going, wow, this is going to be this is great, great TV, great great radio. <laughs> so, so sometimes you want to turn it down, and sometimes you want to turn it up. For the most part, nowadays I haven't I haven't had anything like that for probably thirty years because I don't really do that kind of thing. If I don't like the person or I don't agree with the person, I just don't put them on the show. You know, like, and I don't mean that like a censorship perspective. I just look at it like, I'm just here to have a conversation and learn. And if I don't think I'm going to learn from that person, I've got a lot of other people on the list. So I just don't, don't bother. Um, Next question. From Craig Kadoki in Toronto, Canada. It seems that YouTube, at least for those of us with our premium, uh, without premium, is ramping up the frequency of ads as content creators. Are there any tools to tell the YouTube where to place the ads or make safe zones where the ads don't interrupt mid-sentence? Yeah, yeah. The creators can absolutely mark those. I don't have the exact stuff right in front of me to show you that, but they can mark where the ads were going to go, um, so where where they'll be inserted. And of course, the the ads are good for YouTube. They're also good for the creators. Uh, the more the ads run in their uh, content, the more money they make. So, so they're definitely you know they're finding places to do it. Uh, generally, um, you know, what's interesting is we all think that oh, when the ad runs, everyone stops watching it, but that just really hasn't been the case. <laughs> you know, like that hasn't been. Uh, you know, that hasn't, uh, happened. Um, so, uh, usually people will stick with it and go through it statistically. And so, um, mid-roll ads are the least liked ads, um, but the ones that are the most effective somewhere in the middle after the hook has been sunk in, into the system. Um, they do have problems if they run ads at the beginning that are long, longer than five seconds. So you'll see a lot of five second ads at the beginning. And then the longer ones of support it, support us or our, our, you know, that, that all usually happens at the end. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael's in with a question. In 1967, Bill Elliott of Granada TV in the UK recreated a 1930 drama with an original Baird televisor. Will future generations recreate today's productions the same way? Good, Bill. I doubt it, and here's why. My my thought process is those were the early days, and it was novel. The way things were produced, the look of things, there is something nostalgic about that for people who are interested in reliving an experience from the past. For the last, what, 30 years now, we've been awash in content, and it has just kept growing on this almost logarithmic scale to where now, uh, no matter how you live, you're probably going to get content fed into your brain from thousands of sources every day, sounds, um, scroll by ads, everything out there. And I'm not sure that people are really going to want to do anything other than maybe recapture a moment of importance. Like, I don't know, I'm sure there are people in Great Britain who will go back and nostalgically look at the coronation that just happened or something like that. But the, the general feeling I just think there's too much out there to signal out any one thing. It's it's too big a flow of imagery to have the same impact that it did back when there were hardly any shows on and it changed the way an entire generation or culture 
experience something. Maybe it'll happen again. I'm not sure. Next question. From Steve Fisher in Pittsburgh. I think that's North Carolina. Has a question. I'm doing a multi-session event with Zoom's webinar tool. Is anyone aware of the ability to host these multiple sessions within Zoom, or does this require the added expense of using their more expensive and complex events product? Go ahead, John. He answered his own question. Most of us have been using meetings um, for the last three years anyways uh, because of multiple green rooms and, you know, producer and director's rooms, et cetera. We usually have five to six rooms on on one meeting. And then for multi-tracks, we, we spawned multiple meetings and then we're able to send those links and control the links out to the audience. But this is specifically what events was, was programmed to do to have multiple. This is the only app that allows you to have multiple meetings in one cohesive environment. I'm just, uh, last time I played with it, I, it didn't meet my requirements. Yeah, I've used events a couple of times for clients that wanted to use it and hasn't been a great experience for me. So, so I, I you know, it's not something that I'm, uh, uh, that we're using heavily or unless we have to, um, you know, so, so the, um, but I, I would say that, the problem with meetings, of course, is you want kind of a webinar experience, but in a meeting, <laughs> like, you know, you know, you, that's, I mean, that's what, what we're missing is lock, you know, be able to show, show, um, and maybe, and maybe we, you know, maybe there's a way for us to manipulate it this way. But I think what we really want is the ability to, you know, lock onto a, 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 a single feed or a group of feeds and completely knock out the other ones. So that like a webinar, where you, you don't, when you're in a presentation mode, you're able to do that. And that might be a, a possibility that we don't know very well. It hasn't been, that, that's been the problem with meetings up until now, is that, you know, you don't have as much control over the message. And so that's why people want to use it, uh, or want to use webinar. Um, the problem with webinar, of course, is that it's somewhat limited in the ability to break, you know, do the break breakout into multiple sessions. Um, as John said, the, the, the intention of events was to to make that possible um it's pretty expensive to use and it's pretty it's pretty complicated <laughs> you know and and uh and i think that we just found that we didn't have a we don't have certainty about what's actually going to happen when we go through it and then a lot of the issues are that you know the where they give you little places to put graphics and everything else it's just really hard to create a, a kind of a cohesive look you know for that um, I think that if you're doing, if you're talking about multi-track, um, I do think that meetings are still something that, that a lot of folks are trying to use for for that process, because of the the ability to be in breakout rooms. I would always, um, you know, question the need for tracks when we're doing a virtual event or an online event or digital event. Uh, you know, we're creating a lot of FOMO. We the reason we did tracks was because people all had to show up somewhere. They all had to come to an event, and so when we see multi-track events in Zoom, uh, that is an old thinking <laughs> going into a new product, otherwise known as new wine and old wineskins. <laughs> so so the, and the reason that didn't work was because the, the wine would expand and the skins were already hard. You know? and so, so the problem is, is that, is that the, uh, you, uh, the, the, the real issue that you have here is that there's no reason, if you look at well, like, I think what Apple did a couple of years ago was masterful, which was that they had an event that lasted three months. You know, and they just simply had one event after another in different time zones, and people could go to those individually. Um, but you could do it over weeks, over days. But you know, the problem is, is that the, the the real value of being in an event is to ask questions and to converse. It is not to listen to someone talk. 
Like that is, you know, I can just tell you all the data that we have shows that watching someone talk for more than about six minutes, and I'll try to keep mine less than six minutes right now, um, is, uh, is just a recipe for disaster. Like no one's listening to you, like especially online. Like they're just, they're off doing something else or checking their email. And even, I see it even when we're in a meeting, <laughs> in a physical meeting, when people are down there looking at their email and checking other things and they're not really paying attention. Um, and so, you know, we, we really need to rethink how we do events completely. I know that you're probably not in the, in the position to make that change for your organization, but we want to keep on questioning the need for someone standing up and giving us, whether it's online or physical, and delivering something over 20, 20 or 30 minutes. It's just kind of, you know, or, or 45 minutes or whatever, and then open up for a couple questions. Really, that's a 2,000-year-old, you know, thing that we don't need to do anymore, you know. And what we really should be thinking about is, delivering the content early and then having the event be the discussion about that content um, so that people can actually, you know, you know, gather the information and have it be worth actually showing up all at the same time in a synchronous event. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. I'm 100% behind you on anything public facing. I do think, and I'm, I'm, what I was trying to think of while you were talking about that and I was listening to it is the times I've produced content for corporate use and you have the general session at the top where the generally the management tells you what the broad goals are. But then the breakouts into individual dis disciplines, so the the financial track and, and the operational track and the safety track or whatever, those things do drill down successfully, I think, to just the things that those constituencies need to understand and be presented with. So I can see in the corporate to corporate world, this parallelism still having a place. Because do you really want the financial people into the safety thing when they don't really have much safety content that's well, critical guess, to them. I guess I would argue, and, and, and where I really started thinking about this was long before COVID and long before mm -hmm. even Hangouts or, or Zoom existed. Uh, I went to um, TED Africa, um, so it was a TED, TED event, and they have a single track, single track. It's everybody's got 18 minutes to talk, and then there's a couple minutes to ask questions, and they go to the next one. And there's a couple people that get five minutes to talk because they're not, they don't have enough to cover 18 minutes. <laughs> and um, they, you come in, and there's about four sessions, and those sessions last about two hours. And then between every session, there's like an hour and a half break. Now, what's powerful about that, and, and what I got going to that, because I didn't have that concept, I'd worked in webinars and, or not, or seminars for 15 years by the time I got there was that everybody had just seen the same thing. So when they walked out of that session, you could walk up to anyone and start talking about what you just saw. And you had this, this um, you know, common piece to it, right? And that was incredibly profound. Like it, I, I should, you know, and that was, for me, I couldn't stop thinking about that. And it ruined me for, for, you know, all these different threads, because the idea is, is that we just had, and what we did, what they did is they're just picky. They just have the things on that day that are going to be interesting to most people most of the time, you know, and then they had, you know, what, what, and so what I think is the concept now, what, when we stop thinking about everybody has to show up somewhere or everybody has to, you have a single day that is generally plenaries, you know, that are, are about the things that we're all interested in. And then you just spread out either before or after the event, lots of other virtual events or, or digital events that are about all the other things. <laughs> so, you know, there's a, th th those can be attracts, but there are almost all the time, there are people who want to go to two things at one time. When you go to anything with multi-track, then you go to, you know, some of these like Salesforce might have 20 or 30 tracks that are all going at the same time. 
And there's definitely conflicts and people, you know, don't, and, and it's kind of like, so then people think that they're going to watch the record, but they never do, you know, and, and it really, in, you know, dulls the, the experience for a lot of people or frustrates them because, oh, I want to be at this one and this one. Now, it doesn't really matter if you go, if no one's taking any questions because you can just watch the recording later. Um, but it's, you know, and, and I think Apple realized that why bother? Like, you know, like why bother doing the, they had four tracks running for, you know, at the same time. And I will tell you that the four tracks that Apple ran had conflicts all the time. I mean, when you, when you looked at, at WWDC before they started just releasing all those videos, there was always two or three things that you wish you could sit in on, you know, to watch, you know, and, and because they were all interesting and programmers are doing all of those things. And so, and so the thing is, it was really frustrating, you know, to do it. And, and that's why Apple recorded all those videos and put them all out and edited them all up. And so you can watch them later, but, and that's fine. But if you're not going to take any questions, you might as well just record it without putting people in your, Apple was taking people from that are not speakers, they're developers, and they don't, they do this maybe once a year. And now they have to stand up in front of 300 people and pr try to present something live. And you can always feel it. You could feel the nervousness. You could feel the, you know, there's a handful of them that are really good at it. And almost all of them were not. <laughs> and so, and, um, and so, and I got to watch a lot of them, was, you know, and so um, now they're just recording all that stuff. Now what's missing from WWC now is the discussion, you know, so each one of these, in my opinion, at some point, we got to get to a point where each one of those sessions is followed up by a Q&A, but they shouldn't be stacked on top of each other. You know, in my opinion, I think that you you spread them all out. You know, you look at, um, you know, I think that South by Southwest only gets, uh, you know, they get five or thousands and thousands of su submissions and they only use, you know, a couple hundred, you know, of, of the actual shows and they do them in multi-tracks. South by Southwest could be taking all the ones that were the almost runs, the ones that didn't make it to South by Southwest, and they could do a show every single day, you know, or every week or whatever that, that lets us see all those things and have those conversations. Anyway, I just think it's, I think it's, it's, a, it, we, we have to rethink the way we do the dissemination of information because the old way is dead. <laughs> like we're dying. Like it's just like this, this old seminar, you know, mentality is gotta go. You know, it's just really, it's really holding us back as a, as a species. Um, next question. From Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Why is it that in DaVinci Resolve, when I open an ISO recorded ATEM project, I can't see the analog audio tracks, mic one and two in media pool. If I create a multicam edit using the ISO clips, I have to manually import the audio. I think, uh, I actually don't know. I think that the pro the problem that you're having there is that the uh, that the analog audio is treated as a completely separate media piece um, from that, and I think that it's because the design of the switcher is assuming that your core audio is going to start, you know, in one of the cameras. Um, and and I don't know if that's the case or not. I don't do a lot of ISO recording on the on the uh, switchers. Um, so the only time I did it, it failed. <laughs> so so anyway, so I'm like. Mm. Okay. Uh, so, so uh, I was like, it kind of, I kind of wrote it off. So, uh, so I think that that's the, the only challenge that you're going to have there is I think that the, the analog pipeline within the switcher is treated very separately than from the video pipelines. And I think that's, that's what you're running into. Now, next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking which of these AI discord servers on AI are the most useful and is Discord a reliable source for the world of discord? No idea. I don't pay attention to anything other than like someone that I know is going is got a Discord and we jump into it and you you find it. I don't know of any like search engine or anything else that is particularly useful. 
uh, quick reminder that if you can you can still ask questions. Uh, we have second hour, we're going to talk about HDR a little bit. Um, and uh, if we don't have enough questions for the second for the first hour, we'll start the second hour early because we don't have an external guest. So um, so if you have questions, go ahead and throw those in, um, and uh, you can also vote on those questions as well. Uh, next question. Scott Mueller in Germantown, New York, asking, the web browser in vMix is very convenient, but things like signing into my YouTube premium account isn't supported. Is screen scraping the only other way to get a browser in my program? Um, I think it might be. I don't think, I think you might want to, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent certain we don't have, I don't think we have any vMix users on here today, but I think you might be, you might need to do that. Uh, next question. From Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California, asking what still needs to be tweaked in Zoom ISO? You know, I think that the thing that, that Zoom ISO overall, I think, has been really, really powerful for us. Um, and I think that the the only thing that we're really missing right now from our bigger system that, you know, we're moving over to Zoom ISO. Oh, and I know is moving over to Zoom ISO. Obviously, office hours is already there. And I think that the, the, the main thing that, that we're looking for in that area is be able to do talk back. You know, so we were able to get all the um, individual feeds out. But being able to talk back to individuals or, or everyone or anything that goes back that's not in the program, we can definitely do it to everyone if we put them in the same, you know, we, we can put something into the meeting and then be able to talk to everyone. But we want to be able to talk to each person that's connecting. So I think that that, that and, I, and I, I'm certain that that's a pretty complicated thing for Zoom to do because if it wasn't, they wouldn't be doing it. They would have done it a long time ago. So, um, you know, for us, I think that that's the, um, you know, that's the big thing for me. You know, the other, as a producer the, the other, that produces with the stuff, I mean, we definitely would love to see the, be able to turn the quality up, you know. You know, it's, Zoom is great, but we'd love to be able to, you know, turn that up um, into, you know, to higher bit rates and so on and so forth and support more more channels of audio would be useful for us. But those are, but the big one is talkback. Next question. Mark Giuliani from Washington, D.C., right here on our panel asks, in terms of Mac Studios versus Minis, what's the best setup to get eight or even 16 panelists with Zoom ISO and external Blackmagic Design DeckLink quad cards? Um, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't do more than eight, to be honest. Like, I, I think you're putting all your eggs in one basket, you know, uh, in, in a sense. And so we're doing, uh, we're going to keep on expanding what we're doing with office hours to probably have three um, quad cards, you know, so three Mac minis with three quad cards. So that's two, That's that'll give us six, 24, but really to us, it's 16 with one backup. So the idea is that we'll, you know, be eventually, that's where we're going to get to in the not too distant future um, is to be able to do... Um, is able to make that work. So, so that's the that's where we're um, headed towards um, to make that to make that work. I'm the the Mac Studio, which by the way is only fourteen ninety nine right now on, at Costco. I saw it. I saw it with my own eyes. I was getting some workout clothes in, at Costco, and because they're really inexpensive, and and um, uh, I walked by, and there's some kind of discount for the next couple of days. I think the next four days or five days. It's like five hundred dollars off, which makes me wonder what Apple's going to do it in June when when Costco is selling something for five hundred dollars off. I was like, hmm, maybe we're going to see a pro. <laughs> you know, they're trying to dump the uh, dump the um, the inventory. But uh, so right now, the Studio is less expensive than the Pro, the Mac Mini Pro. It's just a very odd upside down um, issue at the moment. But the um, but anyway, so the the Mac Mini Pro. Um, uh, you know, it has much of the same I.O., but not quite the same 
uh, heat dissipation and so on and so forth. Uh, if I was going to do, I got to say that we're barely pushing the little M, the M2s especially are just, you know, they're at 50% or less at eight channels, you know, of, of and so I would, I would really still lean towards the M, the base model, maybe put 16 gigs in just to give it a little light life, but the, the base M2 Mac mini with uh, a, a Sonnet external and a, or the, the OWC one U that has the, it has storage and a card and a, you know, so that, that looks really good. Um, so one of those with, with just the M2 base Mac mini, I don't think you need the pro or the studio to get eight channels out. Eight channels is really easy for it. Um, the 16, you would definitely want the studio, but I just wouldn't have a computer doing, I don't want that kind of density to be honest. Like I don't, I don't want everything going through, through one piece of hardware. You know, I want to be able to bounce things around. And so that, I think that's the, that's the question I have there. Oh uh, yeah. Go ahead, Mark. I was just going to say, could you just take two of the Mac minis with the M2 and hook each one to a Sonic box? Yeah, that's what, I'm, have, that's that what I would we, do. Yeah. No, no, that's 100% what I would do, is each one of them has their own Sonic box. They have, you know, eight channels. Um, I, I'm a little leery of the 16-channel output of those, you know. And this mostly has to do with almost everything I've ever had that had that kind of density had problems. You know, like it... and, and mostly that it just had a normal problem that normal computers have and then all my, all my outputs are connected to it so so i i think that i would i would feel better with two separate machines than one big machine um i'd rather be stacking them up eight i mean the luxury i have to say the luxury of pulling eight isos out of every you know out of every computer is amazing uh you know and that, i think that's the craziest part of this whole this whole thing is that we just we've gotten used to it like oh i could do 16 or i could do eight we were asking for getting one out of it 10 years ago with, with Hangouts and, you know, telling Google we need to be able to, or we just need to be able to do 10 out of, you know, all 10 outputs from the Hangout or nine outputs. And now we're talking about, oh, it's just eight with a very inexpensive computer. It's, it's a pretty, I mean, it's 200, it's, it's about $150, $200 a channel, you know, to, to pull these out at that rate. And, um, and again, I, your, your, your um, Mac mini, Pro and the Mac Studio should both be able to do 16 without any real trouble. I just wouldn't do it. You know, like I wouldn't, you know, I would I would stick with, um, you know, one-to-one. -one. Um, I think that, you know, there'll probably be things in the future that are higher density, but I, uh, <laughs> like that's all I have to say. Like, oh, it's, you know, and I'd rather, I'd rather spread out the, the, the risk a little bit. Um, yeah. And next question. From Mark Steele in Orlando, Florida. Apple just announced Final Cut Pro and Logic Pro for iPad. Thoughts? Uh, Bill? Wow. Um, Apple in their, their normal process has had, you know, everybody's been speculating about this. And when you look back, when something like this happens, you can clearly see that there are a bunch of enabling technologies. First of all, the M-series chips, which are so ridiculously fast and SIP power. So that's the mobile form factor. The power of that allows for complicated things. Apple's history of not releasing things that are just okay in the beginning. It's been a long time that people have had tools for doing mobile editing on iPads, but Apple has been notoriously slow to kind of say that we're going to do this, and it wasn't until today that it happened. Also, I think the European Union process of demanding that USB-C, one of the biggest problems of digital work on an iPad or any iDevice, and maybe even... Uh, on the other side, the the tools for the other mobile operating systems has been I.O. Uh, getting 
bigger files in and out of your mobile device has been iffy at best. Now that USB-C is going to come to all of them, I think there's a bigger pipeline in and out of these devices. Uh, for me, I just looked at the the link and went, wow, I can tell where the next four or five days of mine are going to go trying to learn exactly what is the feature set of this tool, whether it's, you know, how close is it going to come? It can't possibly do everything that the main Final Cut suite does because that is so deep and so complex. But the interoperability between this mobile version of Final Cut Pro, which may be called something different, it may just be, you know, the subset of Final Cut Pro that runs on the iPad, how it talks to the big things, to the big suite, for me is very exciting. Does this mean I'm going to be able to take rough cuts into the field and tweak them while I'm working on something, knowing that I can seamlessly get back into my main Final Cut Pro process afterwards? it's pretty exciting for me and we're just gonna have to see how it develops it's day one you know i was today years old when i learned this happened yeah i feel compelled to i, I feel compelled that i'll need to buy it i think it'll be really interesting to see how many people like a lot of us have gotten used to the fact that we um we own final cut and logic and we paid for it once and we don't have to pay for it again this is a subscription service so it's 10 bucks a month uh, or i'm sorry for both of them five dollars a month each uh, or $50 a year to to have them on the iPad. So it better be really good because <laughs> we're now, we're now in a, um, but, but to be fair, they cost $300 and that would take six years for it to, you know, to catch up, um, you know, in that, in that payment structure. So the payment structure isn't, isn't too bad, um, but it is an interesting that they moved to the, to the, to a, uh, to a different model. The, it'll be interesting to see how the user interface works. Like just, just how easy is it to get things done? I think that this is also where things like motion could get really interesting for Final Cut because there's a lot of effects that might be really hard to do in Final Cut, but if you built a plugin in motion that does them, and then if those plugins, we will assume, still work on Final Cut, it just means you could deliver a lot of really cool things that can be done. So when you think about, and, and I think that this is, you know, we've seen Apple moving more and more towards the social, you know, um, influencers and so on and so forth. Um, and I think that what'll be really interesting here is to see what happens with the iPad as, as we move forward and how many, and a lot of influencers are using Final Cut, you know, and, and so I think that this is really giving them tools that they need in the field and, and that they need, you know, in, in, in a variety of different places. And um, it'll be really interesting to see, you know, what features are there and what features aren't there. Um, I don't know if they moved everything over, but now we probably understand why Final Cut wasn't getting updated. <laughs> you know, so it was like, you know, like we were like, why is Final not getting updated? Well, they might have been working on something and trying to get it done. Go ahead, Bill. And I can just imagine going out with a Switcher to Studio style environment where you got three iPhones shooting some content somewhere, you're switching it via an iPad, and then it's sitting there adjacent to an edit system for that content live in the field that also runs on an iPad that feeds back into your big desktop system after you get back from the field for further refinement. You know, they're building a little ecosystem here for that kind of incredibly rapid production possibility that I think is going to open up a lot of options for people. I, I will say that I'll make the declaration right now. When I go down to Cinegear, some of the stuff is going to get shot, you know, and, and edited on an iPad just to see if we can make it work. You know, like that'll be part of it because I think that if I'm, I'm going to assume that it supports nine by 16, but doing YouTube shorts on an iPad with an, I, with an iPad on a, oh. you know, with Final Cut, it'd be pretty, 
pretty useful, you know, especially if you get, you get all your graphics all set up of what you want to do. And then you put them all into, you know, you do them in motion of this is exactly how I want it to look. I want to build it all out this way. And then you have it loaded in there. Now you're just throwing things in and, and, and popping things up. It'll be really interesting to see what happens. So it's exciting. I'm glad that uh, Mark was able to show us that. I think that must've just happened. Like we must be like, that must, when we say hot off the presses, it's probably 30 minutes old. So I know what we're going to be talking about at MacBreak. All right, next question. Craig Kadoki in Toronto, California, uh, Canada, sorry. Um, a front page of a recent German magazine advertised the first interview with former F1 driver Michael Schumacher since his accident 10 years ago. It turns out the interview responses were generated by AI, not Michael. Thoughts? Good, Mitchell. Most definitely a, uh, a troubling question because it's philosophical in nature. I mean, it's a shame that Michael had that horrible uh, skiing accident that caused it. But if you don't know for sure that what they're saying is what they meant to say and is being generated by a very, uh, um, uh, very good AI, whether it's a deep fake or anything else, it's, it's, it's almost as if they had to put a disclaimer on it because you're not sure if that's what they really intended. Uh, Stephen Hawkins, on the, other, on the other hand, it was obvious that he was talking through a device and uh, he was literally typing it out and doing it there. So there wasn't any question about whether or not uh, he was generating those answers. But if you're making decisions based on what uh, AI uh, deepfake uh, things are doing, you might be in trouble. The world has changed and uh, I'm, I, you'd have to be very careful. I think that I think that as a press, they're really playing with fire. Um, you know, like the, to uh, the press has to be very careful about using uh, AI to do to do stuff like this because uh, the the confidence we have in the press is at an all time low, and if they make it complicated for us to understand what is real and what isn't, it's just going to get worse. You know, and so um, you know, so I think that that it's a it's a pretty dangerous place for them to go. Um, next question. Next question in from Scott Mueller in Germantown, New York. Can you give a general overview of setting up a production breakout room for Zoom ISO contribution and the audience in the main meeting and being able to have in sync conversation between them? Yeah. So um, what you would, I mean, I'm, I'm going to riff a little bit, so I may, well, this might not be as clean as I probably could make it. If Andy was here, he would just give you one long string of this is exactly how it would work, but I'm, I'm going to struggle through it a little bit. So what I would do is, um, what I probably do is if you, if you think about your Zoom here, I would have, you'd have your main Zoom. I'd probably put a Zoom ISO inside of that room, and I'd also have a, um, the, an, a, uh, another Zoom, this is the ISO out, and this is the show, right? And then what I would do is I'd have a breakout room that had uh, my individuals that are in it, and th th then there's a Zoom ISO there that, that grabs onto those. Those go out to production, and then they come back in, in, in into the show. So the production delivers this as a show. This Zoom ISO would grab active participant, I believe, um, so I think what you'd want to do is when someone's talking, you would need to grab the person that's actually talking. Um, it would be a little tricky so that it doesn't, you know, it would be grabbing them as well. So you'd have to figure out the mix, a mix minus path for that. But um, but basically it would grab active participant here so that, that they could, we could grab active participant, whoever's talking. Um, now you could also select a certain person if, if we have a list of who's who's talking there and then feed that back in. And I'm going to look at the... Uh, 
Um, and then feed. So then, then you'd be able to, in real time, just grab that in because you're not grabbing everyone. You're only grabbing the person talking. Um, and then you're going to feed that back to them. And the only thing that you have to kind of figure out is, again, the, the, well, you should, the, the only thing that I'm not clear of is how we would do active participant and not feed people back to themselves. We'd have to manage, I mean, the way to manage that right now would be with a, with a slider, <laughs> with, a, with a fader. Um, yeah. So, uh, um, yeah. So, so basically what you would do is you would take active participant, feed it back in so they can hear that. So you'd fade them down when you're, when the person's asking the question and then fade them up when they start talking and then that, or what opposite of that. Um, but you'd be feeding their production back into the, um, into the room. So that's how you would do it. And you'd be able to have a two-way conversation, um, you know, with them there. And, uh, you know, I think that there, there are a handful of productions that, that need that. Um, you know, I, you know, McConnell was originally built so that we didn't have to use open mics, you know, like, so, so, so when, when people say, how do I have people talk to me? Like, I'm kind of like, oh, okay, like, you know, let's see how that goes. So, um, you know, I would rather have people who are kind of vetted put into another breakout room and then, and then sent, you know, I would, if it was me, I would have, you know, someone wants to say something and then they go into a breakout room with a producer and talks to them and then they go into another room where there's a zoom iso and then they're just having that conversation with the panel and they're and that and the mix of those two are going back in as the show i wouldn't grab people from the general assembly i would grab them i would put them through a process to make sure that and they're not going to ruin it for everybody um so anyway so so the uh um but i i admit that i have a hard time i've i have spent thousands of hours watching open mics at at seminars and i do not like them. <laughs> so, so, so I will, I, you know, I, I, I brought, you know, it's, I, I find them like a, like a blackboard, someone's screeching along and let's open a mic and someone's going to ramble on for a little while and, you know, lose the thread of the entire meeting because of that. And every one out of every 20 is inspiring. And that's what we hang on to. We go, well, what about that moment with the speaker? And that doesn't happen very often, especially in corporate. Um, next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas asking Obsbot, has a USB-A to USB-C data power cable with on-off switch that supports both data transmission and power. Will it work with this Insta360 link also? No idea. Next question. Next question in from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. Would any three or more B-Link mini PCs to a fly pack? How do you handle keyboards, mice, and monitors? Do you need one for each? Good, Mark. Well, I think what you could do is use a KVM switch and then bring all the monitors into the back of that and plug one keyboard and mouse into it. Yeah, and you would only have one monitor, and you'd have one keyboard and one mouse. And I use a P, it says P-Way on it. I don't really know what, uh, but it's, um, and the new one is even better than the old one. I poured coffee on the old one, and it doesn't work nearly, in case you're wondering, if you pour coffee on your KVM switch, doesn't work it doesn't like it just stops it stops working what well, the worst part is it kind of works and so it just it, every once in a while it will hear you but it's not not the same as it was before so anyway so um but i got a new one it's got smaller switches and they're quieter and so the p-way is the one that i that i use and a kvm switch is what you're looking for the thing that i needed was just as an aside of how i bought the reason i picked the one that i have because there aren't that many that that do exactly what i need is that all the controls are in the all the feeds are in the back the the um the feeds are in the back the input for the keyboard is in the front and the buttons are in the front not on the top it's very hard to put it into a system if anything's on the top 
And so a lot of KVMs want to put the buttons on the on the top of the box so that you can tap it. They think of it as a desktop, but if it's not on the front, um, you're going to have trouble putting it into anything. And so that that was just when you look at KVMs, just make sure that the buttons are on the, everything that you need to do to control it is on the front face, not the top face. Next question. Unsak Durji from Dharamshala, India, asking, Greetings. We use iOS app HyperSlow with ATEM Extreme for instant replays. We're looking for something that gives us mark-in and out features to control our replays easily. Budget 1.5 to 2K US dollars per controller. Thanks. So what I'm not sure of what, when, you're t- when you're asking that is HyperSlow, are you trying to control HyperSlow or are you trying to have a different app that does what you're trying, you know, that does the mark-in? Um, and I, you know, so that's what I'm not a hundred percent certain of. Now, one thing to look at is also, I think you can mark in and mark out. I, Mitchell, do you know if you get with the, with the hyperdeck that you have, can you do a mark in, mark out? I wish. I no, you cannot. It, it'd be great to have that. Plus have uh, a playlist that you yeah. can build. I mean, the one that I have seen is that I believe the JL Cooper controller, there's a JL Cooper controller for the hyperdeck that will let you do mark in, mark out. The it and so it it's got it's kind of wants to give you kind of an EVS control over that over that process you know for that now a lot of folks I'm actually would love to have you come on the show and show us how you're using HyperSlow because I haven't seen I haven't seen anybody use it in production um, I'm I'm in, I'm excited about that um, you know so uh, that that looks actually pretty cool um, uh, so I'm going to take a look at it I I I played with it a long time ago and then just didn't have a use for it. Uh, the one that we use a lot is M Replay as well from Softron. Softron is going to let you have a whole bunch of inputs and outputs. Um, it keeps them all synced up, and you can you can do it. It's a little bit more expensive. It's a couple thousand dollars, I think, for the for the core software, and then you're buying hardware to support it. So it's probably more than what you're looking for. But that's the least expensive uh, replay system that we've used um, on a regular basis um, because of the needs that you you're pointing out right here. Is you know a lot of dexterity to do mark in mark out. Another reminder, real quickly, that you can still ask questions for the first hour or the second hour, um, and uh, you can also vote on those questions. So um, go ahead and throw those in. Next question. Paul Wallace is here again from Austin, Texas, asking, what can you do to future-proof your content so it lives on beyond your lifetime? As a uh, link there, and uh, for preserving your blog, for example, will YouTube live forever? I mean, I think we all we all talk about, you know, you need to keep keep your stuff in three places, two physical places, and one one in the cloud. Um, if you want to do it, shooting at the highest resolution that you can use um, is also useful. We I have read a bunch of things about this that you know a lot of people say that while we have the most amount of capability of documenting our lives, we may be the actual least documented generation ever because all this electronic stuff is all going to disappear and we're not you know, and suddenly there's going to be this huge gap of nothing. And so it, it actually reading that article had me, uh, I'm trying to get my printer working again. Uh, it, as Mark might've pointed out, I think earlier, those two thousands are, you know, once they get, once they sit around for a while, they don't, they stop working. So I'm going to see if I can get it working or get a new one, but I'm going to start printing stuff and, and, you know, I'm gonna take all the photos that I, that I really care about and I'm going to print them back out to, to archive paper and put them onto things. As far as the videos go, we'll see. Go ahead, Mark. So this is really interesting, especially when you start to think about the Smithsonian and how they've been trying to preserve all the old films and move them to digital. And they went through their stages of DVDs and now to formats. The problem, Paul, is that we don't know what the format's going to be in the future. So, you know, 
there's a lot of different formats. They're constantly changing. The companies come and go. So do you want to save it as an MP4? Do you want to save it as a raw file? What will be able to open that 20, 30, 40 years from now? Yeah. Thank you, Mitchell. Yeah, Paul, I didn't honestly give it much thought until I was doing a historical perspective for my uh, high school uh, a video. And I had tons of material from the uh, 50s and 60s in the form of film. Um, I had stuff from the 80s and some of the 90s because they shot it on videotape. But all of a sudden, I couldn't find anything for the uh, for the aughts because it was all out there somewhere. And everybody said, yeah, I shot it, but I don't know where it is or I don't have access to it. I always thought that if it was out on the Internet, it was there forever. Um, I don't think that's very practical. I think you do have to look out for yourself. So it's an interesting question. And uh, in actual use, I found a big surprise that sometimes the old stuff works better. Go, Bill. For me, it was an interesting thing. In the early parts of my career, in the 90s, the, the aughts, um, there was a sense that the Wayback Machine and other things was tracking everything I was doing on the Internet and had some sort of repository, and you'd go back and find things. There came a point where I just thought, it, it can't be doing that anymore because there's just too big a flood. The other thing that was seminal for my thinking about this was I remember my largest client for many years was PetSmart. I did dozens and hundreds of videos for them. And at some point, they made an executive decision to change the shirts in the stores from red to kind of uh, teal. I realized the next day when I sat down to work that my entire archive had become obsolete in one day. Every exemplar shot of someone doing a process in the store was obsolete because now it didn't look like the store and there was a disconnect. So it caused me to think, why am I saving why am I trying to save everything? Are there things, those moments in your life, you want the highlights, you want the highlights of your work life, you want the highlights of your personal life, but is trying to preserve everything a, a reasonable strategy going forward in the future? For me, I decided, no, it was not, that there was times when it was so much more beneficial just to get rid of all the old red shirt stuff. You know, I'll, I'll take the best 10 things or 50 things or whatever and put them in a bucket as the highlights of that era. But the day-to-day -day stuff, all those bits, there's no reason to save them. And I've tried to hold on to that as I move forward, try to figure out what's important to save and what should just be jettisoned. It's too much saving. I, I thought a lot about this. We, you know, we had a tendency to archive everything and we'd tell clients, you know, we don't promise anything more than 30 days, but we would keep everything. Like, like, you know, like, cause they would come back three years later going, Hey, do you have that file? That was the da 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 da. And, and we would give it to them that afternoon. We, we looked like heroes, like, like savants, you know, and all we did was just had a really good file system and we had an archivist that was just there. And that's all he did was just copy things over and, and manage it and everything else. Cause we were generating about seven to 10 terabytes a week, you know, of, of, of content. When we closed down and we had to put a hole through ever for through two thousand uh, hard drives and hit them with a hammer <laughs> to close them out, um, I thought I don't think I needed to save all these things. <laughs> like it was just like like there were just all these and all these five hundred gig drives, you know, like because it'd been there for fifteen years, and so it was like they they slowly got bigger, but it was just like ooh. You know, like, I don't think I needed to save all this stuff. And so you do have to think about whether whether you really need it or not. So now, a lot of times, I, I'll jettison things much faster than I, than I used to. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I just wanted to make a quick point. Um, I have a lot of Betacam tapes from the beta days, and um, a lot of it is unplayable now. So if you're letting it sit on the shelf, 
It is not a good archive format. You should be uh, digitally uh, transferring those files. And you should not try to do it. If it's more than 10 years old, take it to an archive. I'm about to do one. I found I found a, a cassette that's like 20 years old. I'm not moving it. I'm not doing anything with it. I'm going to take it to a company. I'm going to pay a lot of money for it to get to high eight or something. And I'm going to pay a lot of money for them to cook it and then to get what they can off of it. And I'm going to see if there's anything there. If it is, it'll be great. If it's not, it'll be you know too bad. Um, uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael is here, and I've seen many vendors uh, use iPhones as part of the drop kits for remote production. How well does the iPhone work without a connection to a cellular network? Well, you can actually plug an iPhone into an Ethernet. So you can take it. You have a yeah. If you if you take a, uh, a lightning to USB plus lightning adapter, and then you can put lightning power back into it, and then out of that USB, you can connect that to an, a, a USB to Ethernet adapter, and then you plug it in, and you'll see like a little Ethernet thing on the on the iPhone, and it works great. <laughs> so so that's that's a really nice stable way to use your phone in production. Uh, next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking. What's going on with Hugging Chat, making the community's best AI chat models available to everyone? I go ahead, John. Hugging Chat is a service of Hugging Face, which is an open AI community. Plus, it has availability for models and has is a freemium model where you get some stuff for free and other stuff you have to pay for, membership, etc. Hugging Chat is based on the the uh, open source AI model um, from Meta called Llama. Uh, and they had to do some modifications to make sure it's licensable uh, because you can't just run that commercially uh, open. You have to, they changed some of the weighting systems inside this chat. It's not great. Go play with it. You'll, you'll find out real fast. It's not great. Next question. Ian Alford in London, England. Final Cut Pro and Logic Pro for iPad is a subscription cost. Should it have been free? Good, Bill. So we talked about subscription a lot. I don't like it generally, but there are circumstances where I don't dislike it. And this is, I think, one of those. Maybe I'm just being because Final Cut has added so much to my production life. I want to I want to like it. Maybe I'll find out I don't. But here's the thing for me. Final Cut itself, the main suite, is still the same price I paid for it 15 years ago or 12 years ago. Um, and so I still have that. I consider this kind of a plug-in or an add-on. And like a lot of the subscription things, I like the fact that it, you know, that's 50 bucks for a year is something I can easily just write off. I don't consider it a subscription. I don't want to link it to my card. Um, I will probably pay for it like I pay for the Apple One subscription for all the content that I get. And I've always felt those kind of subscriptions are reasonable. If I'm getting something constantly from something and I can subscribe to it, and if the cost is modest enough, I'm okay with it. I think I'm going to be okay with this. I just really want to dive into it and see. So I'll definitely buy a year. 50 bucks is pretty incidental. And then uh, explore and explore and explore. And then at the end, when it's time to renew, I will do what I do with every other subscription. I will put a weekly, a week ahead of time reminder, and I will ask myself the big question, do I need to continue this or not? And I always get those reminders, and I can tell you it's about 50-50, the things that I say, yeah, I need to continue this, versus, nope, never going to pay for it again. It's gone. And what, what's funny is for me, I, I will sign up for a year and then literally wait one day and then cancel it. And the reason I do that is that um, is because it, it'll run for the rest of the year. You paid for the year, and it's the way that the iOS works is that it will... Um, it'll just say you're going to expire and you'll get some little things, but it means that if I forget about it and I'm not using it anymore, 
it just automatically turns off. And I have gotten rid of, you know, I, I realized I was spending like a hundred and some dollars a month on, you know, $3 here and $8 there, things that I don't remember. remember. And that's the best part is one of the reasons that I'm so frustrated with the idea of a new, another app store in the app, in, on the phone or in iOS is because managing subscriptions is so much easier on iOS than it is anywhere else. And I don't want, and the problem, the chain reaction here is that if they put another, if, if Facebook, for instance, put another thing on there, people will put their apps only in another marketplace. And then I don't have access to those because, or I have to go out into the wild world and de deal with subscriptions over there where they're going to make them hard like everybody else. And so as a user, I just want it all to be in the sandbox. Next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, asking, with nonlinear editors getting AI-powered automatic multicam edit functionality that takes down a job that used to take many hours to a couple of minutes, how do we all feel about that as paid editors? Go ahead, Mitchell. I'm a paid editor, and I hate to be the digital light-eyed here, but I'll represent. Um, I'm a visual editor, so I'm not in a hurry and um, I, I'm very suspicious of using anything other than Descript to, uh, to accomplish doing a documentary or a bunch of dialogue. But for the most part, I'm dealing with things that are visually important and the juxtaposition of the images and where they're being cut. And uh, a computer is not going to do an L cut for me uh, as, as, as well as I would do it myself. So my point is uh, I'm, I'm a visual feng shui editor, and I know it's slow, but it works great for me. Go Bill. The bottom now now it's probably sneaking towards seventy percent. It's going to decimate, and it's just how, how it's going to happen. If you don't bring something to the table other than the ability to just string out a story and tell, you know, a process one, two, three, four, five, you're going to be gone. Uh, the people who will survive are the people who have that last thirty percent of vision and creativity, who can. Imagine things that the AI can't extrapolate from its big data set. And I think there will still be people who need to do that. But that's going to, you know, and it, and that number, you know, I used to think it was 50-50. 50% of the work can be done by automated systems and 50% can't. It continued to move up. I never think it's, I don't, I truly don't think it's going to ever get beyond 80. And so, but there will be a smaller and smaller pool and you have to be better and better to be valuable against the AI. Yeah, and I think that it's it's probably going to be closer to 80 within the next five years, maybe even three years, uh, where you really have to be at the top of your game to get paid to do this kind of thing because it's going to it's going to grow really fast. Now, that's the case in many places in the world. Like we, we have to look at it like, oh, well, you know, we, we, you know, if you're a baseball player, that's the top. Like if you're playing for Major League Baseball, you're the top point zero 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 one percent. And if and if you get paid for it at all, I mean, twenty five thousand a year, you might be in the top point zero one percent, and everyone else just does it for fun. <laughs> you know, so so like they're, they're like they play baseball for fun, um, and and I think that we're going to get into a position where a lot of things that used to be um, something we got paid for, you might do because you enjoy doing it, but you're not going to do it because you have a an, a thought that you're going to somehow get that's going to be your living. So I think that we have to kind of separate that out too. I mean, so I think, you know, we used to have to make every plate and every bowl. Someone made that by hand and that doesn't happen anymore. doesn't mean that there aren't still people out there making incredible pottery um, that, that's, that we can buy um, that are doing it by hand. It's just that it's not, 
it's not what we what we have to do. And I think that while this is going to be a huge impact on the technicians that are related to it, it's a huge explosion for the creators. If I have an idea and I want to create that idea and I want to uh, and I want to make it great, the opportunities right now, there's a whole lot of knowledge and a whole lot of things that don't exist right now because it would be too expensive. It'd be too expensive to do that to, you know, with with a person. So for instance, you know, right now we're we're seeing, you know, when it comes to AI, you know, books are now starting to get read, you know, read by AI. I mean, Apple has a service that does it now. You're going to see books go out into 60 languages a day after they were finished. Um, and, you know, um, very, very soon, <laughs> you know, all audio, you know, and, and it's just, you know, we're probably, you know, 24 months away from a lot of services being able to generate enormous numbers of languages, making that knowledge available. There's a ton of books that, you know, like there's a, there's a book, one of my favorite books is called um, Africa, Africa Biog Biography of a Continent. And it's by John Reeder. And I check about once a year because I want to read it again but it's 800 pages. I'm not going to read that. I would love to walk around listening to it. Um, and I'm just waiting for an AI service to pop up <laughs> and read it out so that I can get it because they're not going to, evidently the publisher is not going to pay for it to do that. And so that's what I'm waiting for. Go ahead, Bill. I just forgot what I was saying. It was very important and it would have changed this entire discussion. And yeah. <laughs> I was listening and I was interested in what you were saying and it, it drifted away. If after Mitchell speaks, it comes back, I'll raise my hand again. All right, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, Bill, I, I think I have it. I think I, I you know, Tantled with you on that. Um, it, it's 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 strange that it, it's not that I'm afraid of AI. Yes, it's ultimately going to take a lot of jobs away and redefine what an editor is and what they do. What's more concerning to me is that there is a difference between a bespoke uh, ed edit, like I was talking about earlier, where you're doing it visually and you're concentrating on so many frames and things. Um, it's that people don't recognize that as valuable anymore. Um, it's just good enough if you're doing it with a, uh, a some type of a uh, automated editing, and they don't really like the, how you romance the uh, the AV roll to make it look so brilliant, and how you cut against the thing, all that stuff. It, it's becoming irrelevant, and because of that, that's I think that's more concerning to me than the fact that an AI can do my job. Yeah, the only thing I'll say is that there's a certain level of people that don't that don't get that, but there's definitely a level of people that do get that. You know, and so so there's a you know there's a certain level of um, even on a, a business card is a good example. You watch business cards, and some business cards you can't quite put your finger on it, but it looks way more important and way cleaner than the other ones. And that's the that is a a very skilled designer doing a, a very skilled designer doing something that is, but I mean, I'm just talking about a, a card with like white on it. Like it's just like a logo in white and it's just, but it's just, it's a white card. It's got text on it. It's got a little logo on it. And for some reason it feels like it's designed. Um, and uh, so anyway, yeah, next question. All right, no, let's, let's go to the next question. We're almost out of time. All right. Next question from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Um, how do you organize your groups into folders on discord? I didn't even know I could do that. I just, Put them, they're just in a long list. Go down the side. Uh, next question. Next question in from Paul Wallace again in Austin, Texas. BuzzFeed, bit the dust. What happens to content on sites that vanish, like Google+, et cetera? Does it get saved somewhere, like archive.org? Not really. <laughs> It'll just go away. You know, and I don't know. If, I don't know if there's anything that Buzz, BuzzFeed did that I feel like needs to be part of the, uh, of the archive. I, I know that... Uh, I, they, they talked about, um, I guess Elon Musk is talking about getting rid of any, all accounts that haven't 
participated in a couple of years and people are up at arms and all upset. And I'm just kind of like, when was the last time I looked at a tweet that was more than two or three days old? <laughs> like, like that's, what I, that's what I went through. I was just like, when was the last time? Maybe, maybe it's better to not have our past bleed, bleed into our future. You know, because I, I mean, I always look at the past as, you know, our present stands on our past as the past is our foundation present stands on it and where we pull that present is where we look at it in the future and the problem people get into is they start putting the past into the future <laughs> they have a really hard time getting out of it uh out of the present next question next question in from douglas carmichael do you think we'll see logic pro and final cut pro on the mac transition to subscription only after the backlash from waves doing the same i could see it not going well for apple if they do that I don't think they're going to ever change the one that's on the desktop. And I think that they, they don't need to. And I think that, that, I think here's the problem is Apple had to go subscription because they, they're constantly selling everybody else to use subscription. And so the issue that they have is that they, um, they can't keep on, uh, they can't sell something on the iPad on iOS as a standalone um, like $50 or $100 or whatever, and then go back and talk to all these developers about why they should be using subscription. So I think that's the big problem that they have. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, Google, we have no moat and neither does OpenAI. Leaked internal Google documents claims open source AI will outcompete Google and OpenAI clickbait or not. Go ahead, John. Paul keeps putting this question in its... He doesn't like my answer calling it clickbait for some reason. I don't know what he wants me. I don't know what he wants to yeah. hear. Yeah. So the, the, the interesting thing is, is that I, I, I have realized that if I'm trying to understand something, I'm much more likely to use uh, chat GPT now than I am to Google. Like I'm just not like, it's just way easier. And and so to, to the point that's being made here, I think is that I, um, is that I find myself like when my, when my daughter asked me something, you know, about something, I just, I just opened up chat GPT. Let's see what chat GPT says. And, and we, and I asked, but like sifting through, I, I haven't found that chat GPT is that much less accurate than just Googling and taking the, the top five things that are there. It's just like, it's not, they're, they're just random people with opinions that aren't oftentimes very, I think that especially when I started researching like HDR for what we're doing now, reading watching youtube videos of youtubers talking about hdr was truly painful like as someone who i feel like i'm still learning i still like looked at that and i was like that is not at all the truth like that is like you're like leading people down the wrong path into a hole to think that that's what's actually happening here and so so i think that it was a real eye-opener like oh, i don't know and chat gpt especially when you talk about hdr which we're about to talk about in a second it's usually more accurate than most of the web web uh, stuff other than like going to Dolby or, you know, Wikipedia or something like that. You're, you're Most of the like the random people putting stuff out and just they aren't very good at what they're doing. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, uh, all right. We're now changing subjects to talk about HDR. And, and this is really just an update. Um, I don't know if it'll fill a whole hour. It'll be up to uh, our producers to ask questions and see if it's there. But I want to kind of give you a sense of where we're at. I felt like it was worth um, having a discussion about what we're doing so far and what we've learned um, along the way. I feel like, you know, for a lot of the things that we're doing as far as initiatives go, um, I always want to come back and just say, okay, well, this is where we're at and this is what we're trying to figure out. So 
what we're doing is if you go into Discord um, and you look at, there's an HDR tests up in, up in the announcements, you'll see me every once in a while post an HDR test. Oftentimes on Saturday is when I'll post them because I'm not on on Saturday. And so that usually means that I'm sitting in the back end grabbing onto um, uh, the feeds and trying to figure out, you know, what what can we do with these? And so we've made... We made a lot of progress um, in the last little bit of time, um, and and so I figured I would let you, uh, or I'd talk about and show you a little bit of the um, of what we're doing here um, to, to 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 see if it you know if it's worth it for you. Um, but let me uh, let's see here. Let me uh, let's see. So one of the things that we have, uh, you know, one of the things that we've done is is really um, get into we had a, we had an issue where the problem right at first was that we had our our Zoom ISO bots and they were going out to um, these FS HDRs. So we have six of those FS HDRs that we use, and um, those so they went out to the FS HDRs and then they went back into both uh, office hours, and they also went they were also routed to our, um, you know, the, they were routed out to a switcher that then went to our UHD um, OH test. This really slowed us down. <laughs> so, so this was, this was really painful because it meant that the only time I could do, I could test the HDR was in the pre-show. And I have, you know, we, we would, and the, and the issue that we have right now is that what happens is, and this is because of the, the, the grid that you see, you know, the, the, the gallery, the, when the gallery shows up, we have to, we're trying to map people into that gallery. Um, so, and what happens is, is as we change, as people leave, come and go during the second hour, that gallery changes and we have to remap those. And so what happens, it's very, it becomes a, you know, what happens, it, it's, and we're trying to fix this. This has been a problem for a while is that we are, we have ISOs going out, all these ISOs going out and then they get, they get mapped to the grid, but that means that they have like a hard mapping to those grids. And that's on, both on an audio and on a, on a video, you know, somewhat problematic. So what, we, what we're doing is um, right now is we take these ISOs, we are now mapping them to the FSHDRs and then separately sending them out to office hours, which, you know, I'm, I know it seems obvious now, but it wasn't obvious when we did it. <laughs> so, so anyway, so we're we're sending those ISOs out. So they're split into a, they're split in a router. There's a forty by forty router in the middle of all of this. So they're split out to the OH and then sent to the FSHDRs on their own. The FSHDRs are going into another ATEM. So this is another ATEM constellation. So these are all there's one constellation over here, but there's another one. Here's why this is important, and this is what we're what we've been learning is. The ATEM constellation has no way for us currently to, there, there's no way for us to define this is in REC 2020 or this is in REC um, 709. And these are the two color spaces that we work in. So our SDR is in REC 709, our HDR is in REC 2020. And the issue that we have is that we, that the, that if any 709 hits that constellation, it will immediately switch to 709 and, and it will then flip and everything looks like it's nuclear <laughs> so 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 it doesn't work so every everything that goes into the constellation has to be rec 2020 um you know for for this process and so 
That means that that's why those FSHDRs are so important to us because what they do, and I'll show you in a second what, what it looks like, they convert 709 to, to REC 2020 before it goes into the constellation. Now the constellation is operating inside of a REC 2020 space. Um, and so, and then it goes out and um, off it goes. The, the, so that's what we're, you know, we're trying to get everything to live inside of a REC 2020 space. Now, the advantage of that also is even when we're doing stuff like the test that we did for NAB, what we were able to do is, is we went into that, uh, the, the PQ, uh, REC 2020, PQ curve, REC 2020 space, and we we're able to send that over a live view. So the live view can handle 10 bit, right? And so we would have a camera at NAB and it was set to PQ and it goes out. This is a black magic camera and it goes to live view. The live view sends that over and we were able to just pump that straight into the switcher if we wanted to, you know, we, I think we pumped it straight to the actual encoder, but we could have gone through the switcher and that's actually now we can send HDR remotely. So we now have the ability to do what we did. What we tested at NAB was the ability to to you know show HDR from a location as well as five dot one audio. We'll talk about that another time. So the um, so that is what we're able to do now is drop. It may seem crazy that we're taking Zoom feeds and pushing them into HDR because it's eight bit. It's WebRTC. But the big advantage is, is now if we drop any other playback, if we drop other computers, if we drop other things in as HDR and 4K, we can pump those out. So when you're watching on YouTube, you can see those at full quality and the individuals, us, look like we fit into that space. You know, and so that's what we're kind of working on there. Now, the, the way that we're doing, the other thing that happens is, is that HDR is a lot less forgiving than SDR. So there's a lot more color to work with. And so one of the things that I've been doing, let's see if I can uh, pop this up. This is what, I'm gonna just show you what this, uh, what this looks like here. Uh, let's make sure I get the right thing here, there we go. So here's, here's what it looks like on the back end. And so, um, so essentially the, um, you know, we have, Every one of these, every one of these FSHDRs basically has a conversion. So this is the video color. Um, and, um, and so you see, you know, we're using the color for an engine. Now there's a lot of other ones, like for instance, there's the BBC HLU, um, HLG LUT, NBC has its own LUT. Problem with those LUTs is that as soon as we turn them on, if I turn on NBC, I lose all of my controls. So I can do a straight conversion, but I can't actually control, I can't control all the color. So, so we're still using the, um, the color engine live for this. And so we thought we would end up using LUTs a lot more than we are. And the reason we can't use the LUTs is because we can't, we don't have the color front engine when we're, we can't use the LUT and then add the color front engine on top of it. So that, that be, has become a little bit more of a, a thing. Now, what you're going to see here is this is the, this is my, so what I'm doing here is I'm doing, this is the conversion right here, which is that I'm going from the SDR, um, to the HDR. So you'll see I'm going from SDR bt 709 to pq bt 2020 so that's the conversion that i'm making right there but then i have all these other all this other stuff down here is all part of the um uh of what we have here so if we if we scroll down now hdr amount is something that we were playing with 
And basically what it does is it, it allows me to push that gamma a little bit further. And a lot of these are kind of gamma controls. Uh, now, the other ones that I've been playing with here um, that we're using are master gamma. We might bring that up. That's your mid midpoints. Um, and then, of course, you have master gain, which is the, is the highlights. And the way you want to think about gain and lift is um, if you think about a, a curve or if you think about the, the, a, a waveform, gain scales the waveform from zero and lift scales it from the white point from one so it pulls it up and then gain pushes it up from from the other side and so and then uh the the your gamma is the center point there so anyway that's that's how that that actually works um now the other thing we can play around with is we have exposure i found that exposure works a lot better on zoom participants than than the gamma um, and then saturation, we can bring them up and down. Of course, we can change some color tint, we had, uh, temp and temp and and tint. And we have not started to really use these. These are almost undocumented in the AJA stuff. And I haven't found a reliable way to really, I mean, this is clamping it to P3 color space, which I know how to do, but I don't usually want to. Um, and and some of this stuff here is, is almost undocumented as to what it does. Um, obviously, this is setting the knit level, but like the BT 2040, 2408 mode, I don't even, I can't even find that in the manual. <laughs> so I'm not 100, I, 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 I play with it, but I don't know what it does. Um, anyway, so, um, uh, so anyway, so this is, um, this is, and we have this control for every single person. <laughs> so that, that color control as it's routed. So what I do when you're seeing, if you see the HDR tests, you know, that pop up and you see me playing with those, I have that level of control over every person in Zoom, and I will say that it is beyond the HDR solution. It's really changes how everybody looks in a in a really positive way. Being able to color correct even Zoom inputs on a person by person basis has made a dramatic change in the quality. Some people come in, you know, with the color just right, but you can play a lot with that color with black levels and everything else. Now, if you push it too far, you end up with a lot of posterization. <laughs> so, so that's the, you know, there's not a lot of data there to work with, but you can make that all work. And so that's the, you know, that's the quick update over, you know, what we're actually, you know, doing, um, you know, with, with this stuff and, and, um, and, and how it works. But I think that we're definitely making progress in the sense that um, the HDR is, we're getting much closer to being able to run it. Now, the other thing that we're working on now is to, we're thinking about what does it take to take the same, get the same commands, you know, that are being sent to the main switcher so that the, the other switcher can run at the same time and we haven't got that working yet. But, but I think that that's gonna be there. Now, the other thing that's happening that I can't show you right now is that Chad watches everything that I do. He sees all the data in that FSHDR. The FSHDR is, is controllable by uh, rest commands. And so he can, he can see all the data that I'm doing. And what he's able to do is he's figuring out, as I sit there and move those sliders, Chad's figuring out what am I using and what is, what is, what is being useful. And he's putting those sliders eventually into the OH uh, 2.5 or 2.6 or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's going, he's putting those, he's, we're going to have another page, just like the TD page that is the color page for every person but we're only exposing the, the things that we actually need on a given basis. And so, so that you'll be able to eventually move sliders. And there's two things that'll happen there. We will move sliders on that page to color correct every individual person, and you'll be able to save the settings. So we know that Bill comes in a certain way and Harshid comes in a certain way and Mitchell comes in a certain way and Mark comes in a certain way. What we can do is save all of those out so that when we load up, 
when we decide who's where in what inputs, it can automatically go um, go through and just set everybody's settings to the color correction that we know is needed for that person as long as they don't change their, what they're doing. And then eventually we'll be able to move it and then save it. And so anytime they change it, so that color correction can be something that's automatic. And and I think I think that was really funny. I think that was, um, I believe that yesterday we were talking about it and I think it was 10 to 15 seconds per person to update the FSHDR and somehow Chad changed something and it was now 700 milliseconds. <laughs> so, so less than a second, it's done for each person. So within, you know, 20 seconds or 30 seconds, all those color profiles can be dropped into for everyone to make them look that much better. And so this is, again, way over the top, you know, as far as what we're doing. But I think that it's a really, I, I wanted to give you an update because I think it's so cool. Like, I just think that, you know, we're, and and again, it's it's taken us a lot longer than we expected to get it to get it working and we're still figuring stuff out and finding hard edges but um the i think that there is what we're really trying to do is you know we know that hdr is going to be important um what we're really trying to do is um is to figure out you know how to make this to get this to a point where it's just automatic like we don't hdr surround you know you know hdr 10 and 5.1 is just something we just do you know, eventually Atmos and Vision is just something we just do. And we don't think about it because that's something that will allow us to be able to provide content as we keep on trading notes. This is just the basic update to it. But as we get better, we'll have more more things that people to see. Um, I think that it, it allows us to um, have a service that we can provide to other people and and or that individuals can provide to other people, like not, not us, um, that is that we can all be using this um, in, in products. So yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. I see that, uh, and thank you, and if I jump the gun, forgive me, um, you're feeding Rec 709 and you're doing all these conversions to get it to HDR. Mm -hmm. um, how do you do a workflow where you're providing production elements that go into the system? Is it converted live or is it converted in advance? At, I mean, I might use ACES to do the production workflow, but when I output it, what would I be outputting to? Yeah, so you could you could output to, you know, there's a couple different ways to do that. Um, one is that you could output to PQ. So we would say, you know, output to a PQ curve, you know, is what is what you probably want to do. Um, and uh, we don't need really need HDR10. So the PQ curve is the PQ curve, and then HDR10 is the metadata. It's the max fill, max CLL, uh, max fall, and max CLL, and and the color trims. And we don't really, we're not really using those right now. So we we would make those corrections, you know, live. Um, as as we work, and so you would you can do HDR10, but we were really looking at the PQ curve, the um, the so you could deliver that out, and then we would just have to have a player. And it turns out that one of the reasons we use the Softron player a lot at 090, and why we'll use it here, is because it supports 10-bit. <laughs> so so it's got a 10-bit playout system. So if you send that to us, we can output it from that Softron as a 10-bit player. The uh, you can do it inside of the Hyperdex, but it's super painful. Like we had um, so many problems <laughs> trying to do that with Hyperdex. And so um, the Softron was kind of a revelation for us when we moved to it. And and I have to admit, we, were, we worked with Softron to get the 10-bit working so that we could do what we some of the other stuff that I do. So, so no form of ProRes is going to work? It's going to no, be ProRes HQ. Okay. No, no, you, HQ. it's PQ is the curve. You will need to give it to us as ProRes okay. HQ. So right. the PQ is just the curve that's there, the gamma curve that, that we have there. But the but the format that we typically are going to take is HQ and above. So HQ is 
there's a lot of discussion about this. The 10-bit is supported in regular ProRes and ProRes LT and ProRes Proxy can all do 10-bit. It's just that there's not enough data path. There's the data path isn't high enough in those areas that's too compressed. So you really need HQ, um, ProRes HQ to, to support that as a video. So you would output it as, as if it's flat, you do ProRes HQ. If it's got alpha an alpha channel to play out, then it would be, of course, 4444, which then also supports, you know, 12-bit. Uh, so you could put in even better, you know, stuff that, that that sends it. We don't have anything that supports that in our playback system right now, but but you could do that. And so... So you have the 10-bit, um, but you, that's how you would output that. Now, we'll probably run everything through. Again, we have these FSHDRs. We'll run everything through the FSHDRs so that we can legalize them to what we need for the switcher. The one thing we've learned is not to send things directly to the switcher right now, the current Blackmagic. What we're asking for, what we're hoping that we're going to eventually get is um, even just an API call to the switcher that just says you're rec 2020 <laughs> they don't treat everything like rec 2020 on the way through we don't have that right now so we have to be very careful about making sure that anything that goes into the switcher goes through an fshdr first and is converted to rec 2020 before it goes in and then and then we're we seem to be getting what we expect um uh next question next question from dave troutman in edmonton canada is part of the plan to have an apple tv app delivering the hdr 5.1 audio well, right now we don't need to. Um, we can do this with with uh, YouTube. So YouTube has HDR10 and 5.1 support. So we just stream it to YouTube, and you'll see the HDR in almost any device that supports HDR. You'll only hear the 5.1 on over the uh, over the top sets. You know, so so things like uh, the Google, some of the Google products as well as as the Apple TV, the app, the YouTube app on the Apple TV, um, will um, be able to tag that and go into 5.1, and it's pretty impressive when when it works um but you're not it's not not doing that right now um to all the devices so um we're but we're on the front edge you know there's only a handful of people that even have five one on on youtube so so um so we're on the front edge and our job is to figure out what the use cases are and to figure out how to use it and then to, to do things like this where we talk about what that process is and we'll talk about the audio in another day where we talk about how that audio is getting processed because what we're doing with that um, is using, we have Elisa Studio along with the mixer and we're going to, you know, we'll talk more about that in the future. Um, but we're also taking, you know, what we did at NAB was take Ambisonic, send it back raw over the live view and then, you know, convert it back to 5.1, then mix it in with the mics. And so there's a lot of, um, so we're figuring out that pipeline and hopefully be able to educate people on that pipeline as we move forward. Um, next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Do we need an ATEM Mini ISO and some special software to contribute to this? Over Zoom, no. It's just whatever you send us. I mean, obviously, it's better the better the camera and the more data. But you know, there's only a limited amount of data coming on WebRTC and, and SDR, so there's nothing nothing necessary on your end to do that. There may be somewhere in the future where we're getting 12-bit contribution. So we are looking at that 10 and 12-bit contribution from individuals. So we might want to have someone do a concert and we want them to send us back something. And then we would use things like Streambox or if you know other, other software um, provides uh, support for HDR, then we might use that for that specific stream to make that work. There's a, some of the Teradek products um, you know, support 10-bit and 12-bit um, transfer. And so there's a bunch of things that we could potentially use um, in those areas to get a full bandwidth back. But that would be for one specific person for a specific reason. Uh, next question. 
Mark Giuliani in Washington, D.C., and right here on our panel, what type of bandwidth do you need to be able to send HDR from a remote site to a production site? How many cameras can a live uh, unit uh, send out from a remote shoot? Do multiple live uh, uh, units uh, start to eat up available cellular bandwidth? So the bandwidth isn't particularly – HDR, the 10-bit is not that much higher. It's like I think maybe 20% higher than, than regular SDR as far as the output goes. So it's not – it's not like adding res. I mean, or it depends. You can always add more data <laughs> to things to, to support them. What is necessary is about a twenty percent increase, but you oftentimes will double. You know, to give you more headroom, um, the the bandwidth. But the the but it's not like going from uh, standard definition to UH or going from HD to UHD is four x. You know, of of what you're what you're doing there, um, and then the with the um, with the live view. Uh, for 1080p, it'll support four signals out at the same time. So the the 800 will. The 800 will do four signals at a time. So you can do a four-camera shoot and send it back and have it pop out of an, an LU four at 4,000 and um, and go into your into your show. So those are those are things that are doable, you know, right now as far as that goes. Um, yeah. Next question from Douglas Carmichael. How will we be controlling the FSHDR parameters in the office hour infrastructure? Is there a dedicated universe page? That's what that's what's being worked on right now. So Chad is working on the dedicated universe page that's going to be able to control the FSHDRs. And so basically, you'll be moving sliders and it'll be moving uh, parameters inside of the FSHDR. Um, and so he's watching what I'm doing in the correction. He is noting those and then experimenting with what it takes for him to control those. And then we're, you know, then we're tying that universe page back into it and also saving those settings so that for each person, we can make those adjustments. Um, you know, we can just hit a button and they get what they need um, on a given day. Next question. Brad Willard from Boston, Massachusetts. Will Zoom ISO be able to do HDR? Example for a Link360 to be an HDR all the way to the HDR ATEM switcher. I don't expect Zoom ISO to do HDR anytime soon or or for Zoom to support HDR anytime soon. But we have for years been converting Zoom feeds to a version of HDR. It's, it's Is it as good as the, taking a raw feed that started as HDR? No, it's not as good. Um, does it look better? I think so. Like I think it definitely, when I look at the stream, if you look at some of the test streams that we post up there, uh, I think that a lot of the participants do look better than, than what um, they, they did, you know, especially after we color corrected them. Um, so I think that we can make Zoom look better than it is. It's, it's not, again, it's not a true uh, HDR. It is true HDR, but it's not, it's not as good the quality as we, we could have otherwise. Um, there's, you know, there's a lot of posterization when we start to push it. Uh, next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, asking, what is Rec 2020 and 709? And isn't the Constellation older legacy hardware? Is there better hardware? Uh, as far as the hardware goes, I mean, it's, the constellation is still pretty current. It's a couple of years, but it's still it's still current there. And it was built when there was a you know there when that was available. When you look at the price and performance of the 8K constellation, you're not going to find something else with that much I/O and you know that that stability at that price. You know, especially if you if you're trying to do uh, HDR. So um, so I you know there's not a lot of other options at the moment to make that actually work. Um, especially with the kind of the number of people that we tend to bring in, you know, so we, if we, uh, we have to support up to 16 people plus playback, plus graphics, plus all those things we have to, you know, we really need 20 inputs. Okay, find, find a switcher for 20 that has 20 inputs um, for $10,000. <laughs> Go. 
<laughs> you know, so, so, you know, like, you know, I'll still, I'll just wait until you're here until you get back. I'll have lunch and dinner. You know, there's just not a lot of other options at the moment from a hardware perspective of making that actually work. So, um, and Rec 2020 and Rec 709 are the space, the color spaces. Um, those are the, you know, one is, you know, the, the 709 is what we've been in forever. Um, the Rec 2020 is the space that is designed for HDR. So it, it basically, and that's a whole nother second hour that I'm probably not going to, I'm not ready to, I don't have the diagrams for right now. But basically Rec, Rec 2020 is a much larger color space. So it's defined as a much larger color space. So all, all Rec 709, if you think about um, the color space that Rec 2020 sits in, if you, if we make a box out of it. Oh, I did that horribly. Let's try that again. So if we think about a color space like this, the Rec 709, this is the Rec 2020 color space. The Rec 709 is like a little box. This is the color space that we've been working in, you know, for the last, you know, whatever. So this is Rec 709 and Rec 2020 is this huge space. Rec 2020 by itself is not necessarily, per, you know, having more color, the color, ha but it, give, it gives a space for, the HLG, P3, uh, PQ, these are bigger spaces that have that take up more of this and they still don't usually take up all of it, but it's a container and that container is much uh, larger than, than Rec 709. So that, yeah, go ahead, Bill. The other piece of the naming convention is the ITU, the International Television Union, proposed these back in the day, recommendation 2020, recommendation 709, and then they were adopted, passed out, voted on, and everybody says, yes, we are all going to go in this direction. The technical standards of Rec 709 will be adhered to by all the membership, and it became the standard, and the same thing with Rec 2020. Next question. Next question, Douglas Carmichael. Would there be a value proposition for HDR in a modified Office Hours 2.5 platform targeted at the educational market? I dreamed of implementing it at a large private high school. Not, not really. <laughs> I'll be honest. Like, I don't know. I don't know if HDR is going to make a huge impact on a general education uh, system, and, and it might create more trouble than it's worth. But what I will say is that what one of the big things that I'm interested in with HDR is, um, number one, is I think that it does have an opportunity when we're talking about concerts, when we're talking about um, events and coverage. I do feel like it feels more like you're there. I think that it's a skill set that's going to become more and more important. And so what I'm, things I'm really trying to do is get us thinking about HDR so that when a client comes to us and says, well, I'm thinking about this and and we and we can provide that and not have it be something like, oh, I got to spend three weeks trying to figure out how HDR works or how 5.1 works. Like we're doing all this right now and we're using this platform, you know, office hours as a test case. And we're able to, and we're doing it in parallel and we're spending uh, what will end up being about a year, you know, working on this um, so that, you know, we're ready to to take on something when someone shows up. And, and you know, I, I'm a firm believer in the saying that, you know, luck is when opportunity meets preparation. So we're preparing, you know, for that. And and the key is to do the whenever you can do slow prep and slow, you know, and figuring things out over a long period of time, um, you end up in a situation where you have a lot of wisdom and knowledge about something that you may or may not, um, you know, know. And so the, there's a lot of things that we'll understand, you know, based on this, on what we're working on here. The other thing is, is that by the fall, my goal is to be able to, hey, if we want to do classes, if I want to talk to, about HDR to you and you have an HDR, like a phone or a, or a TV that supports it, I can show you what the difference is between HDR and SDR. I can show you these other things. I can 
I can actually do a class about HDR in HDR. And I haven't seen that online, you know, of, of where you can actually talk about these concepts. And same thing with Atmos and Vision or Atmos and 5.1 or 5.14 or whatever those things are. Being able to actually talk about them and have you hear them if you had the the assets at home is profound, you know, when it comes to teaching, because that's just not, I haven't seen it. And maybe it does get happen, but I go to Dolby's webinars um, and I don't, I don't see that. <laughs> so, so anyway, so I think that uh, it would be good to, to be able to have a, an apparatus. And again, an apparatus that by the time we get done with it, we won't even think anything of it. We'll just go, oh, we'll just turn that on. Yeah, we'll do the HDR thing. And eventually, you know, it'll be something that we're doing every day. There's some tone mapping to go. Well, once we take something to HDR and we bring it back to SDR, there's some tone mapping that isn't perfectly one-to-one yet that we're working on. But we're, you know, when we get that sorted out, we'll, we'll be closer. Next question. Brody Hefner from New York City, New York. What's your current assessment of the potential for automated color grading, perhaps for those panelists with a standard color chart available, like the DSC Labs Chroma Dumond uh, Cam Alignment Chart? Yeah, I think that there's, um, there's a, a bunch of automated things that I think are potentially a possibility in the future. I just don't know how long it will take us to get there. Same thing with audio sync. I want to get to a point where everyone can just hold up their phone and it just immediately syncs all the way around you know, everybody, you know, just looking at a signal that's coming off of the phone um, without any interaction. Um, and uh, and so uh, I think that that's definitely something a lot of us are are thinking about. So um, anyway, so, you know, the idea is to be able to correct everybody's audio and their video um, nearly instantly, um, uh, you know, for a show will definitely change how it looks. And it already looks great. And a lo- the, the biggest thing is that the panelists do such a great job at what they've set up that it makes it a lot easier for us. Um, next question. Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California asking, what is the cost jump from HD to HDR for a complete setup? And it's really SDR to HDR. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're trying to do what we're doing, it's really expensive because we're cr- color correcting everybody in Zoom. If you're just trying to output HDR, it's not particularly more expensive, except for you'll need the something to encode it. Um, and so, there, but the, the the good news now is that even OBS and Wirecast, I think, support HDR streaming. So HDR 4K streaming. So you could, it, there's not a huge cost in it. And that's one of the things that we're really interested in. The way we're doing it, there's a cost um, because of the color correction and stuff that we want to add. But the the reality is there's not a huge jump um, in, in cost to, to produce it. There's a huge jump in understanding what you're doing. And that's the that's what we're working on. Next question. It's a question for me. If I wanted to build my system up for HDR, what monitor would you recommend? Go ahead, Mitchell. So you, you, yeah, I, I started out. investigating this, and of course, being a Sony fanboy, I looked at the new Sony 32-inch. Uh, it's very it's nice. $30,000. It's only thirty grand. You mean the new one is only thirty grand? Only, I thought, I only sure, thirty grand. I thought for sure when I looked at the specs of that new one, if it's the one that released at NAB, I was like, that's going to be sixty grand. That was like fifty-five thousand dollars. What I was expecting, twenty-five to thirty. But when you get it the way you want, you have yeah. to add on all this stuff to make it work. Uh, a, a, a deal at twice the price. <laughs> it's a really, it's a really nice monitor. I, Can I, saw I cry the specs on, on office it. hours? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Go ahead, Bill. Well, if you want to play at the lower level, the last probably 10 videos I've done for my clients, I've shot in iPhone HDR. Um, you know, as long as you get a, a color grading process that's reasonably automatic and fast, you can turn out your 
standard um, exports. And to me, it was just revelatory. There have been two circumstances in my career when I went, oh, wow, this has helped me build my career. The first was decades ago when I shot inside a glass-enclosed mall, even on a handy cam. And because the light was like butter everywhere, the stuff came out looking brilliant. And I just... I. Every time I showed it to somebody, they went, wow, this looks great. Can you do another project for me? And it really accelerated my career. When I, during the pandemic, when I started playing with my iPhone, I had a similar-like experience. If I shot an HDR on my phone and I brought it into Final Cut and I just lowered the brightness levels down, those shots seems to pop in a way that my footage had not before. It was more colorful, more engaging, more visually alive. And my clients kept coming back to me with, this stuff looks great. And you don't have to charge me three arms and two legs to generate it. And I went, Ding, this is the second time this has happened to me. I'm going to pursue this. It's not the full range, everything is perfect, but in terms of generating content that people really like the look of easily, it's been transformative. I mean, the, the, as far as monitors go, uh, the I believe that the, the Blackmagic 12G will preview HDR fairly well for you. If you want to support vision, I think you have to go to the Atomos. Atomos, the Ninjas and some of the other ones are, are going to support. You, you, you want to look for it because it won't decode. Only a handful of small monitors will decode at, uh, uh, at, uh, yeah, vision. So vision is the thing that you have to be careful of. HDR 10, I think you can, a lot of monitors will support, but the, the Blackmagic 12G is a good one for that. Um, next question. Next one in from Kyle Hammond from Chicago, Illinois. And he's asking, what device assets would I need for this Alex HDR class? Is there a syllabus or a supplies list? You'll need a, um, it won't be my class, by the way. I'm looking at building the classes, but we have a lot of people interested in us teaching HDR, but they'll come in and teach. <laughs> so so it, won't be, it won't be me. Um, and so, uh, but the, the class, um, I'll do the intros and we'll figure it out in second hours. But when we do an actual class, it'll be some pretty interesting experts. Uh, in that area and so um the you know all you're gonna need is a apple tv with a, a tv that supports hdr um for when we're talking about those things or an, I, an ipad in the last two years or maybe two or three years the uh, the iphone in the last two or three years those are the kinds of things you would be able to look at and see those things um there so should be should be interesting and there's you know there's some monitors that will attach, attach to your mac mini or whatever that do it um i will admit that uh hdr on a pc and android are more complex you know so so it's it's a little bit and it's mostly just because the, the market's so fragmented so some stuff is there and some stuff isn't but the on the apple side it's pretty simple on the you know, on the android side and the windows side it's a little more complicated uh next question from ike potter in hanover germany when you know which camera brio insta black magic pocket cinema camera a new person uses is it more efficient for the color correction to start from scratch or use a profile of a person with a similar camera setup you know, there's so many, so few settings. Um, I, I, I think that we would generally just for each person, what we want to do eventually is just build a look. You know, this is, this is, this is Bill's look. This is Mitchell's look. This is, you know, Hushie's look. This is Mark's look. And, and we just have, this is the look that we think they're going to look the best in. And some will have a lot of correction and some will have a little bit of correction and they'll, you know, and, but that'll be the look. And as long as they don't change things and what we'll ask them to do is like, if you're coming in from a remote location or you're, you've changed something. <laughs> then let us know <laughs> so and then we'll we'll go back and correct it um there so you know i think that that's kind of what we're 
leaning towards. We, we have talked about using LUTs for it, like just building a LUT for every person um, to, to really, the real issue is, is that we don't have any adjustments. And so we can't apply the LUT and do color front control at the same time, or we don't know how to do that. And so, so that's a little bit of a, a bummer, you know, from, from our perspective, but we're making requests and trying to figure that out. So that's, again, we're out here, there's nobody else that is trying to do what we're doing. So it's, it is a, um, you know, we're by ourselves. <laughs> so, so uh, but, but our goal is to make sure that, you know, my, my goal is by the end of this year, that we have hundreds of people that understand how to author in Atmos and Vision and HDR 10 and, and 5.1. And, you know, we go for, you know, and, and the, the, the advantage, if we all learn together related to this is now we have a bit of a brain trust. So, as we teach ourselves these things, you know, we're out there kind of trying to figure, I'm trying to figure it out with a handful of folks from the dev team and, uh, you know, a couple people on the back end. And as we figure this all out and then we spread it out to everyone else, if everyone else starts to play with it and starts to use it and starts to work with it, we end up with a lot more people that have played, you know, we understand a lot about Zoom because a lot of us use it, you know? And so, so the, the, the big thing is, is that there's a, there'll be a, I think a, a big opportunity where we might, you know, if, if we can get as far as being able to do these classes by the fall, a year from now, we may be the, you know, the, the group that understands more about HDR than anyone else in the world, um, you know, as an as a, as a online group. Next question. Next one in from Douglas Carmichael. Could the same office hours HDR pipeline be adapted to remotely directed live music theater production? Yes, that is the idea. <laughs> so, so that's, that's what I think we're much more interested in down the road is that type of um, delivery. And so that should be good. All right. Oh, we got one more sliding in right before we, right before we close up. Go ahead. Next question. From Xander Snell in Miami, Florida. Hi, all. Would it be hard for Blackmagic to create an override to force the switcher to Rec 2020? Can we lobby for that? Yeah, we're not going to lobby just yet, but we may have to. Um, and uh, evidently, it must be hard because they haven't done it, so so or or not important. So we'll hopefully make it important for them, and then we'll see what happens. All right, thanks everybody for uh, for coming in. I didn't I didn't know how long I I go into a lot of these not knowing how long these are going to last. You know, they're simple, um, but uh, we had a, a lot of good ones here. Um, the uh, um, we got one more question, I think, coming in through here, so I'll, no, we'll go ahead and answer that one. i got to close this off. And it's from Douglas Carmichael. If we replaced the Constellation with a Ross Carbonite or an Ultrix switcher, would it be simpler HDR pipeline? I don't know. I, I don't think that's a real problem. I mean, it, it's a minor inconvenience to do that, and it's a lot more expensive. <laughs> so so if, if, if Ross wants to give us a switcher or a gun, let me know and we'll test it and get back to you. But outside of that, um, we're, we're, we're pretty happy. It, it, I should make it out. It's, it's the, the constellation is the best switcher value I've ever, I've ever seen. Like the, the, what I get for it for the price is kind of insane. Um, I, I would love to use a carbonite the Ross carbonites are great. Um, I just don't, we, they're considerably more expensive than the, than the constellation. All right. Uh, Great for a uh, second hour. Great first hour. I I got into it thinking this this whole show might last about twenty minutes. <laughs> when, I, when I showed up this morning, I was like there weren't there weren't a lot of questions, and there wasn't a lot of and we we said we 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 are needing a little early, but not not a huge amount. Um. So uh. So anyway. So thanks so much. Uh, just a quick reminder that uh, uh um uh Cheryl Otten Otten Ritter uh, returns. Um. You know. So Ott House is uh, we had her on a, about a month ago. So amazing. 
like so amazing. And Cheryl, you know, uh, Cheryl's work is is really really great, and she's really fun to listen to talk about it. And she she broke. We're not going to talk about her history like the last one. I had to have her come back in because she had so many other things to show us, and we only got through like what she's done in the past, and you know how she approaches things. And now we're going to be breaking down projects with her. So uh, tomorrow should should be some must see TV. So so definitely come by tomorrow for it. It's going to be really really good and you're going to want to you're going to want to be here and ask questions because it's going to i think it's, i'm really excited about having her on again um a, a quick reminder that we have the reader's lab at 3 3 p.m today um so and it's really not just a reader's lab it's now just kind of a demo if you want to play around with being a panelist or a reader or a, or a host uh, you want to play with the back end and learn how to switch at three o'clock on tuesdays uh, we do this kind of we kind of open it up and so it's it, it started off as a reader's panel and now it's just kind of like a mock uh, show that you can kind of play with without having to have it affect the real show. So if you're interested in that, it's 3 p.m. and you can find out more on the email that went out. Uh, we traveled 69,000 miles, 112,000 kilometers, and uh, 551 million bananas for scale. Uh, thanks again to the um, to the panelists. Can't do this without you. Thanks to the to the producers for asking all the great questions and keeping this thing moving forward. When I thought for sure it was going to last like 10 minutes, 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes. Uh, and, um, and then of course, thanks to the incredible team on the back end that's putting up with all these changes and all these things that we're trying to get done that are just totally absurd. And like, we, we we're playing an absurd game and, uh, I just really appreciate everybody's, uh, effort, um, and, and work every single day to make this happen. So thanks to everyone for that. All right, let's jump into after hours. I forgot to drink my tea. I was so... It's over, it's over somewhere else. I was like, oh, so thirsty. And then I was like, oh, right, because I didn't drink the second tea. I know it's very complicated. I did that just for Mitch. I just see Alan Smithy's name. <laughs> oh, that was horrible. 